Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Germania by Simon Winder. It's a book that concentrates on the Germany that you don't know, the micro-kingdoms, the strange customs and the intriguing histories of the various pieces of what makes up the country we now call Germany, even if much of it is no longer within the borders of the place that we're so familiar with, and I use the word familiar quite loosely. It's a terrific book that changed some of the perceptions I had about the place, and I do hope you enjoy the interview. So joining me across the desk here in London is Simon Winder, the author of Germania. Uh, Welcome, Simon. And can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and where you come from and ultimately how you ended up writing this book? Well, I I work as a publisher at Penguin Books and uh, where I do a lot of history publishing. Uh, My own interest has always been in history. And I suppose I wrote this book because... I had a very, very long-standing interest, I can say 20 years or so, uh, in German history. And uh, the immediate grounds on which I wrote it, I suppose, was that every year I go to the Frankfurt Book Fair as part of my job. And I built up the habit over the years of staying on for a bit afterwards and uh, going to some nearby town. And I was always struck by the way that everyone used to just be derisive with laughter about how boring these places seemed. And I remember once going to Darmstadt and everyone just thought it was just like the most absurd idea. But in fact, Darmstadt turns out to be a really, really interesting place. Sorry, yeah. is this other Germans uh, that you met in Frankfurt or other, or other people well, in the actually, publishing yes, trade? Um, but I, know, I think I don't think I came across any, well, there's a couple of exceptions. But most of my English colleagues thought it was a, a bizarre idea. Uh, but then also many Germans, too, who effectively had come from Berlin or Munich and who themselves knew very little about their country and viewed all these places as being provincial and jokey. Um, I remember talking to a distinguished Berlin publisher once about going to Quedlingburg, uh, and uh, he was saying, oh, yes, that's a place where old people go or something. And he was just totally baffled as to why it would be interesting. And I sort of sympathise. I mean, you could see how both sides there, well, not both sides, but both nationalities uh, would have reasons for saying that. I mean, effectively, the English lost the habit through the two world wars of visiting Germany. I remember when I was growing up, my parents were driving around and they, at one point, I think we were driving to Italy from, from France and actually they took a longer way round in order to make sure they didn't drive into Germany because they felt it was not a good idea. Um, and then similarly, I think for many Germans, I suppose that there, that, that, that has been this cult effectively of traveling abroad for so many years that, um, that, that either you hike in the woods or you go abroad somewhere. That, but, so the idea of internal tourism in Germany is quite limited in some ways. Um, and so everyone had a reason for not being interested. And I rather liked the way that that cleared quite a lot of space for me to be interested. So I could go to somewhere like Marburg or Mainz. And I just thought it was absurdly interesting. And I found myself being pushed 
more and more into writing a book because it seemed to be the, this golden opportunity. You know, I felt that you know it would be impossible to write a book about, say, Tuscany or Provence or whatever because there are millions of them and there's nothing to say almost, uh, whereas I felt it would be possible to say a lot because I knew a lot of the specialist literature, both through my own interests and through the authors I publish. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to like, find a context in which a lot of this research could be put in a more jokey and sort of silly, in some ways, format. Um, and the idea that for many, almost by definition, most of the people reading it would feel this information really was brand new, um, uh, simply because of the context in which it was being put. Um, and I did feel, this, I mean, that over and over again, I suppose I've over the years visited many dozens of German towns, and I've yet to find a boring one, to be honest. I mean, they're all really interesting in a way that English towns of the same size just aren't. Mm. It's it's strange to pick up on that idea about uh, Germany rather than a book on Tuscany. In Britain, you tend to find that people get attracted to one of the big three, Spain, Italy, France, and they go back year after year after year. But you don't feel many people boast of going back to Germany year after year after no, year. No, it's a funny uh, batch, yeah, funny uh, bunch of people. Uh, well, in fact, in fact, you start off the book with with uh, a few words about that, which I found uh, quite telling uh, and quite accurate from my own experience. And that was that uh, you know people almost come to Germany by accident. It's people who are there almost because they're they're not somewhere else, and for whatever reason they've ended up studying a little bit more German than French in language classes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they're just thrust into this world, which, after all, is so important and so integral to the rest of Europe. It makes you yes. wonder why. And I do think, I mean, I, to be fair to everyone, I mean, everyone always says, ooh, it's just it's history, the weight of history. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it, I think, is the weight of clouds. I mean, I think it's an awful lot of sunshine problems with Germany. And I suppose if you only have two weeks off a, a year, you're going to go somewhere hot in many people's cases. Whereas I'm not particularly interested in sunshininess myself and so therefore i'm vulnerable to the idea of going somewhere where it's cloudy and not caring particularly but i think for many people that does rule it out and then equally i suppose over the past 40 years people have become very used particularly to say italian or french food and so again that's obviously apart from the climate there's the temptation of being away and being able to eat essentially in italy the same food you prepare at home which always struck me as being a bit odd but anyway people go a long way in order to make the same eat the same pasta that they eat at home and with marginally fresher ingredients and they and that's considered going on holiday whereas going to germany is viewed as obviously there are many jokes about german food you mentioned Um, something called a slaughterhouse platter oh yes that's a dreadful thing yeah uh, yeah, (laughs) go go to go to a gloomy uh, gloomy forest on holiday and and eat a slaughterhouse yeah it's probably not brilliant from a sort of tourist poster point of view i agree it Uh, sounded awful the way that you described it can you yes well there's this awful thing yes called a uh, slaughterhouse platter which is a uh, as a ridge of sauerkraut with two uh, uh, sort, of, sort of look like sort of canisters uh, of um, I suppose intestine filled with ground sort of blood and liver uh, with some surgical clips at either end which are then cooked. They were they they had different ingredients in. If I yes, one right. was like I think one's ground liver and I think the other's ground kind of bone meal of sort of blood or something. It's really and and they kind of detumesce <laughs> if you hit them with a knife and then they go all over the sauerkraut making it edible. I would, um, I would ask you what it tasted like. I had a couple of mouthfuls ma- and oh, I oh, couldn't. Right, it's just dreadful stuff. Yeah. But it was funny to look at, so I got I took a nice picture of it on my mobile and things. But otherwise, that was his only real value, I think. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Well, uh, uh, as a confirmed fan of uh, Wiener Schnitzels, who could eat one just about every single day of uh, oh, for the rest stuff. of my life, I, yeah. I'd, I'd be very happy. And cabbage as well. Yes, I think to be fair, I mean, one of the great om- omissions is the fact that most German food's fantastic, and mm-hmm. uh, there's tons of brilliant things to eat in Germany, which essentially we had just have no idea about here. You know, it's simply not part of the stereotype. Um, and uh, everywhere you go, you have this you know, potentially superb food. But of course, the other irony is that most Germans spend a lot of the time when they're eating out, they don't themselves eat slaughterhouse plates. You know, they actually Greek or Italian or Chinese or Indian. You know, like there's no uh, that that no nation is obliged to simply eat its national cuisine the whole time. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I don't know what we would do in Britain after all. No, absolutely. We, Thank we, goodness we, for Indian restaurants. Well, I mean, much as I love bangers and mash, I do appreciate that we, we don't have the best uh, no. best name in food yes, either. Yes, we shouldn't so. talk. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Although uh, slaughterhouse platter might be a platter too far. Um, can you tell me what it is that you actually find attractive about these these towns? Because there is also an enormous variation. What what is it that holds Germany together? Uh, it doesn't define itself in the way that a nice island nation does. Uh, so what yeah. is it? What is it that is Germany? I think the, the astonishingly different political history, as I suppose, what is meant to kind of hold my book together. And I think that's something which people really, on the whole, know nothing about. Um, Essentially, it's probably fair to say that since the late Middle Ages, England and Wales and later on Scotland have been a stable political entity um, with remarkably little anxiety about that. Whereas the Germany is splintered into literally hundreds of small units. Um, and indeed, Germany itself, you could say, has never really existed until the late 19th century. Um, and so it was a large zone of generally German speakers, though with huge mm. variation in that in political units no bigger than say the city of Westminster or whatever in many mm-hmm. cases um, and nobody managed to establish any real authority over that it came from a kind of total vacuum of authority a collapse in the power of the emperors which meant that that you know, political units which here would be something like Huntingdonshire or whatever have be- be- stabilised as states now, they weren't full states, but they were pretty much independent in their day-to-day business. Mm-hmm. They taxed themselves. They had their own minute little armies and so on. Mm-hmm. And this went on for hundreds of years. And it means that each of these places tended to have a court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, because they had their own courts, therefore they had their own artistic life, their own religious life, and they competed with each other. Uh, and therefore, it made many of these places very exceptional. Um, and I think the origins of so many things which we associate with Germany, for example, the incredible university system, mm-hmm. is based on the way that dozens of these states set up their own universities so that their university would be the best. And that's an entire the, the, the centralised London-based nature of Britain uh, is could not be more alien. And it's it's uh, there are extraordinary little examples. I mean, there's a place called uh, Prum that was it in the south. Uh, which was simply an abbey with a uh, with one of Jesus's sandals in it, <laughs> and and the whole job of that little micro state was um, to look after the sandal and organise the pilgrimages around. So it was it. a whole state called Prum. Prum, yes. I mean, it was how, tiny. How many, how many people in? Oh. How, what, what are they? Prumians? Prum, yes, I think, I think it must be Prumians. I thought. But there's a handful of monks and and you know enough townspeople to keep the show on the road. Yeah. Or Quedlingburg is an interesting example, actually, because that's a very small town uh, with a new town area, but the new town was built in about 1100, which from, I suppose it must be about 800 AD, 
I, might be, I think that's right, um, was there to simply, there was a group of aristocratic nuns who ran this place. And it was a sort of female republic. Uh, and the nuns' full time job was to pray for the soul of Henry the Fowler, the great Saxon mm-hmm. uh, emperor. Um, and the town was just large enough to provide the economic backdrop to allow them to do that. And they, they, they and the state survived for about 800 years or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was incredibly long duration, these places were there, and they've left incredible uh, artistic and cultural and historical remains behind them. Yeah. In a sense, we don't get the full picture because we're, we're, we're looking at Germany from the arbitrary point of 2012. Yeah. As if we'd looked uh, 150 years ago, for instance, it would have been quite a different place. Oh, absolutely. Yes. yes. And, and, and therefore, it's a sort of, there's a lot to be said in a way that it would be quite hard to write a similar book about this country, I think, because mm-hmm. effectively, this country is a story of probably of London and four or five major industrial cities. Yes. Uh, and then everyone else just get in effect, circulates in mm-hmm. a safe and happy way. Whereas uh, uh, Germany, or the, the area that's now called Germany, was uh, traditionally it was like a stomping ground for endless armies heading back mm. and forwards. Well, you actually say at one point that, 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 that German history can be seen as, a, as an argument about poorly defended borders. And uh, yes. especially when you look at German nationalism, and should it, should it include Bavaria? Should it include Baden? Should it in, include Austria? And that's before you even get to questions such as Switzerland. Yes, so it's, it's a fiendish, very complicated. It's a fiendish subject, and yes, and the way that there is no right answer, I think, has been created a great deal of impatience in Britain, where this, the the right answer has been self evident because it's mm-hmm. dictated by sea coasts. Yes. Um, but where you have, in effect, a, a large fringe uh, on on each side of the of the german speaking area where which is mixed or was mixed you know there's an incredibly difficult thing there is no right answer or the endless wars between i don't know say leopold the 1st and louis the 14th mm-hmm. neither was correct in a in a verifiable way mm-hmm. you know they could both point to reasons why this town or this river or whatever should be a border yes and there is no right answer unfortunately and that's i think in the end why you get such hellacious excesses of nationalism um, in the late 19th and early 20th, starting in the late 19th and early 20th century, mm. which really get out of control because effectively you have states at that point making absolute demands on their citizens. And who are those citizens becomes very, very unclear. Um, mm. And you have a situation where the, the people who had previously just lived in Prum have suddenly got to become Germans, you know, or Essen's another good example. You know, Essen was simply an abbey mm-hmm. um, run by these ladies uh, of no importance at all, uh, and they didn't know that there was a family there called Krupp, who um, oh, yes. who yes. developed it into this enormous workshop um, in the space of about fifty years. And uh, am I right in thinking Essen's the fourth biggest city in Germany, or something it must be of that pretty magnitude? Much. Yeah, it's enormous. Yeah, but really, it was traditionally tiny. I mean, it always. I mean, interestingly, as usual, I had a tradition of metalwork and iron ironwork but on a tiny scale. And so the idea of it become this uh, armaments behemoth in the 1920s and 30s, you know, it, was like, it would have been incomprehensible to the, exactly. the, the nuns who ran it for centuries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a great deal of the charm of these tiny little micro-kingdoms comes through in the book, uh, quite bewildering at times, the, the, the number of them that you deal with. And you, uh, another quote from you was the, uh, you talk about the free imperial citizen, uh, s- the three imperial cities being the real heroes of Germany. Um, I just wanted to, th- there was one bit where you're talking about how the, the British crown 
has become so involved with so many of those because they're yes. a ready supply of, oh, yes. of yes. Uh, fundamentally Protestant and noble-blooded uh, husbands yeah. and wives, especially <laughs> the girlies, for the, you know, so, so that the you know the British uh, royal family could could keep itself going by adding the Saxe-Coburg Gothers from here and Hanoverians from Absolutely. there. And, and there's one bit where you you list just a few of them: uh, Braunschweig Zeller. Uh, Mecklenburg Strelitz, Braunschweig Wolfenbüttel, uh, Saxe Gotha, Brandenburg Ansbach, Saxe Meiningen, uh, uh, Schleswig Holstein, Sonderburg, Glücksburg, <laughs> Tech. I mean, it, 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 it's, the, it's the names themselves. I have know, you, they're do, such a laugh, aren't they? <laughs> do you, did you have any favourite ones? And, and, and if so, why? I mean, what makes, what makes a micro kingdom stand out? Well, I think some many of those places like are I don't know, it would be like getting your bride from Droitwich or something. It's just like a funny thing to do. You know, like yeah. they're very small they're small and neither here nor there. Yes. And yet they in fact had a in many cases very powerful local traditions mm-hmm. um of artistic patronage and so on. And they didn't have really beautiful palaces. I mean some of them were a bit fly blown, but mm-hmm. you know, and they had difficulty keeping up. You'd have some rush of money, which maybe came from some successful military campaign or finding a mine or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and they weren't really viable places in their own right, but you could play your cards right. You know, like um, uh, one of the Anhalt states uh, in, in what's now Saxon-Anhalt uh, was where Catherine the Great grew up, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, she was German through and through, and but she was a minor princeling. Her father was an important figure at the Prussian court, and she suddenly found herself whisked off to Russia, given the name of Catherine, converting to orthodoxy and marrying this maniac, who she promptly connives at his murder and then mm-hmm. makes herself queen and empress. The rather. great, the great, yes. possibly the most successful of all German rulers, in fact, perversely, yes. but in Russia. Um, and so you could uh, you could make good from one of these little states, which is again fascinating. You, know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you didn't have to come from one of the big states. And I think England was an important part of that. The, 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 the British royal family could not marry, on the whole, major figures because it could compromise them or tangle them up in some mm. alliance they didn't want. And so they loved these little tiny states where they had these pr- Protestant princesses who were properly brought up but who wouldn't cause any fuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ultimate Protestant princess, of course, is Prince Albert, who's, who's brought over yes. uh, from, um, from Gotha, which, again, is like, you know, a very small place. Um, but he had all the right credentials, and again, it was easy for Victoria to marry him because it didn't mean, didn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. he could simply he could simply sire children, mm-hmm. uh, and he, the, the, none of his relatives could really get in the way, and so on. Um, and it's odd how actually Victoria's children slightly spoil that pattern by themselves actually marrying quite important people, um, mm-hmm. um, and so you have a sort of different pattern where the heir to the German throne, for example, marries one of her children, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, these small states are marvelous because they're. I guess they're marvelous because they're harmless, you know, like they're, mm. they're, they can't do any damage because they're too little to do any damage. And their, their continuing existence was in many ways added to the instability of Europe, but it, you couldn't pretend that these places were out for glory except in a very small way. Um, mm. uh, and so their very existence, it always seems to be is kind of, a, sort of an attractive uh, commentary on the pretensions of people like Frederick the Great or Louis XIV. Mm. And... Um, do you have a favourite? Well, I really like the Royce Principalities, which are these two minute places in what's now Thuringia, 
Gera, Gera and Grice. Help us out with a little bit more geography. It's kind of, I suppose they're uh, they're near Saxony, so like it's a series of uh, mostly it's a mostly forested land, mm-hmm. um, and it had these tiny, there's two there's two small valleys uh, ruled by different branches of the Royce family, and they were given one of the emperor. I can't remember which Henry emperor it was, but one of the Henrys. Uh, in the early Middle Ages, gave them this land. And out of gratitude, uh, the, all male children in the royal families called themselves Heinrich. Um, <laughs> and they each had a number. So it wasn't the, the ruler who had the number. The number was incidental, that you would stack up the numbers across the generations. So if I had two brothers, we'd all be Heinrich. That's right. And the, I Henri- might be 17, 18, 19. Exactly, That's exactly. So, so you had like Henry the 56th at one point ruling or, you know, and, and about once a century, it was like uh, taking an abacus. You would start again. Somebody would say, this has become absurd. We need to start again. Yes. Um, but you had this random sequence. So it wasn't. Yes, so you, the rulers weren't Henry the First, followed by Henry the Second. They'd be Henry mm. the First, followed by Henry the Twelfth, followed by Henry the. And you know, and these places were very, very small, but very, very attractive. You know, and again, they had their own diplomacy, they had their own arts, they had their own musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of these places are very, very important. Um, Anhalt Curtin, again, another of these tiny Anhalt principalities near uh, near Leipzig, or I think west of Leipzig. You know, the, the, briefly, there was this very talented musician in charge there as the prince, and his ruling there happened to coincide with Bach um, falling out of favour with the favour of the court of Weimar. And so he invited Bach over, and he stayed in the castle for some years. And because the prince happened to be a Calvinist, he was not interested in church music. Uh, and therefore, Bach, while he was employed by... Oh, and also the Prussian court orchestra had been folded up. So uh, the, the prince of um, Anhalt Curtin bought it, basically, and brought it in. And so Bach had... Yeah, so the greatest composer in Europe had an incredibly good orchestra to work with and no musical requirements except secular ones. So he essentially invented secular classical music at that point, or mm-hmm. many of his greatest works were written in this period. And it was just the accident of of patronage, you know, this tiny place. You can still go to Curtin, there's the, there's the castle where, he, where Bach lived. Uh, it's an incredibly glum place in some ways, but, you know, there's a great little Bach museum yeah, and things like the Brandenburg concertos and things are all written there. You know, anything. Well, that's an astounding thing. You wouldn't. There's, there's no context which you could. You can't compare that to anything in Britain. Yes, because you know, Curtin you would is never genu- have that power of patronage no. to be able to attract. Exactly. So Curtin is genuinely important. You know, and and indeed, you could say all the Bach, all the breaks Bach got in his life were all to do with the patronage of an individual city, or an individual ruler. Yes, um, it, it, it reminds me in a in a sense about uh, Renaissance Italy, where you had the the very powerful city states and the and the families, the Medici's, etc., who ran definitely. them, who were able to attract artists uh, and so on. Yes, and and the need to compete with each other mm. was expressed. I mean, there's lots of uh, silly stuff in the book about cabinets of curiosities, which I've always found really really interesting. I loved reading those bits. Of the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> v- various ways to put precious metal and eggs together. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah. So you had these sort of. Um, lumps of like red coral or whatever would be brought over the Alps um, and they were really exotic by the time you got the long way inland uh, and they were used in all kinds of ways but each of these rulers again they would compete with each other for you know the most elaborate ostrich shell table piece or you know the most extraordinary coconut usage or and then they would miniaturize as well there was some a small group of bananas artists in 
Flanders, I think it was, who specialised in, in carving things like an entire crucifixion scene on the inside of a walnut, for example. <laughs> you know, And so they would compete with each other for the latest oddity. You know, And I'm, yes. I'm sure each dinner, when so-and-so visited the Duke of such-and-such, um, were pretty tense as you unveiled your stuff. And mm-hmm. there's always this danger someone would say, oh, actually, I've, got a Nautilus, I've had a Nautilus shell for years or whatever. Absolutely, or a walnut with a crucifix. Exactly, in, so it's it. fitted, fitted a standard down our way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, why don't we go back a little bit in time to uh, the beginnings of uh, of what we might think of in uh, in terms of Germany. And uh, I suppose the thing that's in most people's mind in the popular imagination would be that scene from the Gladiator film where you have um, the uh, Roman armies on the northern frontier, somewhere just over the Rhine, I, mm. I seem to remember. And they're, they're facing through the gloomy forest, of course, the, this uh, bunch of savages, this bunch of barbarians who, who you know, shake uh it's it's a decapitated head in their arms and they're all wearing fur and etc etc <laughs> and and in a sense this is this is uh the beginnings of of germany yes. and yet there is this link to the roman empire a bit later on because you end up with the holy roman empire and charlemagne and so on uh, is, is is there any simple way to understand this because i i struggled well i think that there is this amazing i suppose one thing that's really hard to imagine, but must have been the case, was when people like Charlemagne are there. So, sort of, I don't know, 800 mm-hmm. AD, I think. I'm very bad at dates. Just before the early Middle Ages, shall yes. I say. In that, the time of Charlemagne. He, he really lives in a world really filled with Roman rubble. You know, they're surrounded by, yes. you know, most of the towns are substantially depopulated and they have been for a long time and the population is very small. But here are these Frankish warlords who really are surrounded by a lot of, like, Roman kit, much, more, much, much more substantial than now. And, you know, the, 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 the sides of buildings would have been used as the basis for simple palaces and things like that. And they are all obsessed with, with this past that they're surrounded by. And the continuity offered by Rome as being the centre of Christianity mm-hmm. does keep this in the forefront of people's minds. And Latin does remain the lingua franca, as it were, of of Europe. And so Charlemagne in this amazing uh, imaginative leap uh, effectively decides that he's refounding the Roman emperor, emperor, em, empire and mm-hmm. makes, him, makes himself the Roman emperor uh, and creates a court at Aachen which is meant to be Roman in many ways uh, and he encourages Roman learning. There are lives of him written in the Roman style by Einhard. Um, there, there's all kinds of things he does to make make this a reality, um, but he's he is in the end a, a brilliant barbarian chieftain, and he's guessing, and everyone's guessing because they're trying to recover something which has really not been there for a long time, uh, or where there's very distant. You know, they know about Byzantium, which is still up and running and, mm-hmm. and really very effective, and so he copies Byzantine things in his, and you can still see it in his chapel in Arkham. And you can see that that's the model they follow. You know, the, the, the nearest thing they can make themselves to look like the Roman Empire is this, is this kind of gold, you know, gold mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, it's just it's an effort of will, really, that he's a, he's a genius at organizing armies. He's a cultured man. He's probably illiterate himself, mm-hmm. but he understands the value of literacy. And he, this coalesces around him. And and but what he's creating is a Roman em, a Roman Empire. Uh, where 
the, the political borders we understand simply don't exist. You know, these are, as I said, it's a thinly populated Europe with mm. ban- very fluid bands. And if anything, he's Belgian. You know, they're all Belgian, these people. You know, if, mm. But there's no such thing. But it's like that's the part of the world they're from. They're not from these German forests. They're from mm-hmm. this, you know, they're from this sort of, uh, there's a lot of rivers, there's a lot of small settlements, but there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's an artisanal kind of part of the world. Um, and I suppose it's really in the aftermath of the, it's the failure of his sons to maintain the empire and this attempt, this plan to split the empire, which creates modern Europe effectively. That you create this, uh, the, the, the kingdom of the Franks effectively becomes the western bit, i.e., France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the, the central area, the kingdom of Lothar, which becomes Lorraine or Lotharingia mm-hmm. or Burgundy and various disguises over the years. And then you have the, 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 the eastern bit, mm-hmm. which is broadly kind of Germany. Um, but no one thinks in those terms, and it takes centuries for these things to. Of course, work I mean out. we're looking at it with hi- with hindsight and shaping things into what things have become over the. Yes, century. they happen to become that way, but yes. of course they could have headed off in any number of directions, which we'll never know. Yes, uh, and there's nothing intrinsic about Germany as a shape or as a thing. But then you have this amazing discovery in the Renaissance period of this genuine text of uh, uh, Germania. Which is this? Uh, which is there's a single copy in this abbey of this genuine Roman account of what the people on the other side of the Rhine were like, mm. and this causes an absolute sensation. And people who are at this point living, uh, as as it's copied and copied, and of course once printing's created, the, 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 these Italian scholars effectively look pouring over this text, where we literally have no other uh, source to check it against. So we don't know when it's made up. You know, and we don't know when it's real at all, but it does implies there's a kind of community called Germany, which is these lands north of the Alps and yes. and, and, and east of the Rhine. Um, and it, that's where it really begins. Yes, yeah. uh, with a certain family of languages. Which, yes, uh, and of course people are speaking all kinds of stuff. And, yes. uh, you know, the, 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 and then you're set on this trail of well, what, what is Germany? You know, and for many years, Germany, of course, is a mass of small states, as we were discussing earlier. Mm. And but it's united by this language, so people like Goethe, you know, see a kind of community of language across these different states and don't care particularly at that level. You know, mm. they, they, you have you have these sort of cultural Germans, but then the the the, the ongoing example, particularly of England and of Britain and France, implies that maybe there is something rather pathetic about all these little tiny places. Um, mm-hmm. um, and in which case they can turn to Tacitus to say, well, look, here's this account of us as this people with particular characteristics. Yes. Uh, what if we, in effect, almost like copy that? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in parallel with this is this funny thing about the Roman Empire, you know, that somehow that's the, they're the inheritors of the Roman Empire in some way, which just isn't true in any way, discernible way at all. And, mm-hmm. uh, there's a wonderful thing where Charlemagne, when he dies, is buried in this uh, incredibly elaborate Roman tomb, which they'd found, um, which um, has this, uh, it's very beautiful, it's covered in elaborate carvings of various kinds. And clearly he chose it because it was the poshest Roman thing he could find. But in fact, mm-hmm. it's like it's some kind of Bacchic feast mm-hmm. is actually being shown with like these sort of nude girls and satires and things running all over the place. But for him, it was good enough that it was obviously Roman and 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 you know upscale whereas uh, sometime after he was uh, buried he was reburied in something more you know christian <laughs> um because yes. obviously it's rather embarrassing that he was meant to be this great christian hero and, and unknowingly he he buried himself in this uh, pagan tomb 
but I think that's classic. That's typical of the period. You know, like they they're really guessing. You know, yes. And, and and over centuries and centuries, you get closer and closer to this ideology, which is you know more or less fabricated, effectively. Mm. I've I've often wondered about what it was like when a great empire such as uh, the Romans disappears. I mean, here in Britain, for instance, we had a lot of uh, Roman settlements, and and uh, what happened when. It retreated. Were there farmsteads left over, whatever? Uh, and then trying to work out, well, what kind of um, what kind of mythology came sprung out of these these ruins dotted around? Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly difficult to say. I mean, I've, I've been in. Uh, I've been spending some time in Lusatia, which is a really fascinating mm-hmm. part of Saxony, uh, on the border with Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lusatia is really interesting because it's fairly clear that for many years no one lived there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a terrible. It seems as though, anyway, there was a terrible plague in Constantinople, which is, is well recorded. Uh, the end, right at the end of the Roman period, and the uh, and this spread, uh, and it seems rather like I don't know, say the interior of Western Canada, where most Indian mm-hmm. tribes died from smallpox without anyone even knowing they ever existed. They were so thinly populated. It seems as though everyone was killed because the the tree cover becomes complete. Um, uh, for a couple of centuries and it's very mm-hmm. much sort of like Sleeping Beauty or something like the whole you know, quite quickly if people die their farms or whatever become engulfed in trees and trees are like the enemy mm-hmm. um, and so it was, there are no burials there's no nothing and so it's I think a large areas of Europe I think after the collapse of political authority and then plus the, the, yeah. the spread of plague I think it just emptied out yeah ver- various populations hit just below this critical mass and yes and nature they just, takes uh, over yes nature I mean the the, 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 the German business with forests is real i mean that that in the i suppose from about 1000 onwards effectively you have these uh, wave upon wave of german colonists from the yes. rhine being paid to head east um and uh they don't have to pay any rent for like a generation or whatever i think mm. it's called mattock rate because they have to use mattocks to dig up the trees and mm-hmm. it's only when they're actually plowing that they have to start paying money to their new landlord um, and and so the, these large areas of what's now Germany and Central Europe as a whole are being recolonized almost from scratch, and you have Slavs coming from the east, and you have Romanians coming from the south, mm-hmm. and you have Hungarians as well, and and they're mixed of course, and they're all mixed, and, and they all arrive. Everyone arrives, and so the later catastrophes of Central Europe are really based around the fact that there's a point where everyone arrives. And they feel good about themselves, you know. And, and in the 19th century, one of the great disasters is that everyone studies their own history and yes. they're not compatible. You know, they all overlap. And often the, the natural borders aren't there. No, you know, because <laughs> they weren't meant to be because no one thought in those terms. Yes. So you have these places like Transylvania, which are a total mix. I had my um, honeymoon in Transylvania. Oh, good and, idea. And, and, and it was a Hungarian place that we were in and you had all of the little Saxon settlements there. Uh, so-called Saxons. Yeah. I mean, they weren't Saxons of the Sa- Saxony that we know. Uh, and they all had their little lookout towers so that during the church services even, there's always someone scanning the eastern horizon for the Tatars and the Huns and, the, and the, the Mongols coming out of nowhere. I love the way that the men folk were on the edge of the churches as well so they could man the battlements more quickly. The yes, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the congregation of the churches, the seating plan so that everyone sits in their own place yeah, so that everyone knows where to spring up to the, the moment that a, that a Turk is sighted. So, uh, but Trans- yeah, Transylvania is maybe a perfect example of the problem because you have, yes, you have these German free towns, you mm-hmm. have Hungarian landlords and Romanian serfs, mm-hmm. and you have uh, and a lot of poor, poor, poor Hungarians too, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have gypsies and Jews in effect, interweaved. Say, yes. 
And there is no right answer. You can't say who's going to be in charge. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no correct answer as such. And oh, there are all kinds oh, of massacres. Curious. I mean, I was reading about this curious one in the Middle Ages where, say, Krakow, for example, is substantially yes. a German town. And I think it's around 1200 or whatever, all the Germans are massacred and it's, and it's made, turned into a Polish town. But it's a violent process by which the ownership of these towns becomes incredibly mm. anxious and people are it's a tense. Everyone's on edge. But they, mm. on the whole, get on more or less. But they get on in conditions of you know, incredible like external pressure. So mm-hmm. the idea of being attacked by the Turks, for example, is, is sufficient to Absolutely. keep everyone good. Mm-hmm. Um, but once that pressure's off, then you have really a terrible time trying to work out who should be in charge. Um, mm. Now, now all of these, um, it's difficult to call them events, all of these trends, all of these things that happen bit by bit in various interminglings throughout the uh, throughout the. Let's not get into dates again, but you know, <laughs> even before the Roman period, but all the way through to the late Middle Ages, the Renaissance, etc., and then the nineteenth century, uh, the twentieth century, and even the twenty-first century. People look back on this and they try and draw from it. And you mentioned at one point that uh, that the Middle Ages actually uh, are quite a source for uh, German polities over the over the centuries. And certainly by the time you reach, uh, although in your book you you quite definitely stop well before the Nazis. You know that that's a well-trodden bit of history that, in a, in a sense, doesn't interfere with the rest of the book. Uh, the Nazis are probably a, a perfect example of how you reach back into history and try and find all of the different bits and pieces and put them together in a way that suits you and shows that whatever it is that you're trying to do is correct. Yes, and I think probably the, the gloomiest aspect of the book is the way that, I suppose it's kind of saying, isn't this history interesting? Mm-hmm. But equally it's saying, isn't it terrible the way history is misused by people in charge? Mm-hmm. And the so-called lessons of history or the, the, the wish to, in effect, mad, match up to some earlier imagined historical ideal are terrible in, in practice. They can be incredibly misleading and, and, and noxious. I was talking to the other day to someone who's an expert on, of all places, Heligoland, which is a tiny oh, right. island yes. in the eastern part of the North Sea. It used to be British, didn't it? Yes, it was a Danish possession which the British nicked during the Napoleonic Wars and then mm-hmm. in a period of Anglo-German friendship handed it, swapped it for Zanzibar. Yeah, um, I remember. That's why I heard about it. But, the, the, but Heligoland, for example, like Himmler, uh, during the Third Reich, ex- apparently spent enormous amounts of energy uh, on sending divers down around the base of Heligoland to prove that it was the Aryan Atlantis mm-hmm. uh, and that it was the remains of this sunken continent from which the, his magnificent people came. And you think this is just demented, you know, like the, 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 everything about, say, Himmler's projects particularly, there's just a sort of chilling stupidity to mm-hmm. them. I mean, the town I mentioned earlier, Quedlingburg. I was going to mention that, yes. Yeah, I mean, there... Oh, it's a shrine. Have, yeah, Henry the Fowler, you know, was, was buried there. But the, 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 as soon as the Third Reich began, Himmler arranged for Quedlingburg Abbey to be taken away and to be turned into an, a shrine for the SS. And there are these appalling photos of the whole town completely covered in swastikas. And it was deconsecrated. And it's very odd when you go inside, it seems oddly tidy in there. Uh, and it's very beautiful, but it's very neat for such an old building but it was simply because in the 1930s there were all these gothic choir stalls which were torn out mm-hmm. because they looked too french uh and it it didn't fit with what they wanted and then there was an enormous the the main stained glass window was replaced by an enormous stone nazi eagle with a swastika in its claws the remains mm-hmm. of which are still in the museum there in fact it was smashed up yeah. and henry the fowler was reburied wrapped in a swastika and uh, you know sorry why henry the fowler because he was a great enemy of the slavs 
So ah, it fitted right. in with this idea of reconquering Poland. So effectively, he took no nonsense from Slavs. He converted them. Okay. He Germanized them. Uh, and of course, taking it in a almost in, well absolutely insanely different context the idea you could get uh, you could be proud of and view as heritage for such poisonous reasons such a remote figure doesn't mm. seem to indicate that there's something a bit wrong with being interested in history i mean that the, the whole strand is is just wicked really um, but it goes together with a project effectively of thinking well if these lands are meant to be german lands mm. you only you can only Define that, and you can you can only justify that to yourself and to the people who are doing the terrible work for you by pointing to various bogus historical precedents of various mm. kinds. And so you can see why divers mucking around in Heligoland or uh, ridiculous SS shrines would might be at the heart of that. Absolutely, mm. and of course, uh, one other thing that the Nazis did plan with uh, the whole project in the East was rebuilding settlements and bringing together all of the German people in this kind of ruler. Uh, status that, yes, that, 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 that I, yes, we've almost yes. spoken about when we were talking about Transylvania. Yes, well, Transylvania is a fascinating example because, I mean, that's still a live issue because of the mm-hmm. way that the Germans Well, well there, not the Germans anymore. Well, but I mean, it was like, until like, sort of 1990 or so, there were still yes. a lot of Germans and effectively they all live in nice flats in Stuttgart now. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, they, but, but one of the odd continuities, I suppose, in the 20th century has been this attempt to get all Germans into Germany. And so it's just been one of these funny old mm. leftovers that the German government continue to offer money to get, Germ- in effect, German speakers out of other parts of the world, um, uh, which in a perverse way carried on the project of the Third Reich, where yeah. effectively all these long-standing German communities in Russia and the Baltic states were all brought back and, and to, notionally to be settled on, on, on mainly Polish soil. But many, I mean, because of the way the war progressed, most of them stayed in sort of camps of various kinds and they never were never settled anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but you think these, you know, on the whole, blameless figures. I mean, in, uh, I was in Viscri, I think, one of these, one of the Transylvanian towns talking to this very old man. I was there, yes. And uh, the most in- interesting guy, but as I was saying, you know, in the 30s, they all did the Hitler salute and things. They all thought the idea of powerful Germany was incredibly exciting. And he said and most of his school friends were killed. Mm. And they've recently put up a big uh, memorial to all the Germans killed in the Second World War, which, again, is a very peculiar thing to do, but effectively part of the shutting down of that community. I mean, he's only there because he's so old, Mm. but virtually nobody lives in that village anymore. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, just recently, uh, a lot of the fate of of the Germans that were left over in what then became Polish and Czech lands, for instance, has been uncovered after the war because, of course, there were pogroms against the German Yes, I mean, so, uh, so there's this terrible stuff in the, the northern belt of um, the Czech Republic, the industrial belt, sort of, uh, the, 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 yeah, there was, the, uh, they were treated effectively as they had themselves treated the Jews. And it, it very quickly became clear that these pogroms, I mean, the, the loathing for German speakers was so great mm-hmm. for obvious reasons that there was no choice but to expel them. But yes, it's one of those buried horrors of the Cold War, which people have only recently really started to... Mm-hmm. uncover really um, it was a sort of studied indifference for a long time but again that's one of the interesting things I think visiting these small German towns is that many of them are only so lively because of the enormous refugee uh, population so it's not like Lübeck really was a, 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 de- a, you know, a, a dying old town and then it was horribly bombed in the war but enormous numbers of Pomeranian refugees and things arrived there and turned it into a quite vibrant place again or this place like 
as in like Schwäbisch Gemund, for example, which is absolutely in the middle of nowhere, but it's filled with uh, Germans from Brno in central in, in Moravia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's uh, weirdly there's a statue in the main square there of um, of Mendel. Um, the great uh, monk uh, who invented genetics effectively in, but he invented it in Burno, not in Svebisch Gemund, but mm-hmm. they moved the statue with them when they were expelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now he's sort of, Mendel is like an honorary citizen of, Shre- of Svebisch Gemund, sort of folk de Muir, I suppose. Um, how, how, how very peculiar. Mm. Um, do you think that Germany, uh, I mean, obviously we, we've just come off the back of a, a 20th century uh, where Germany actually played a, a role that has created an image in people's mind that's very difficult to erase. Do you think that, that, that people in the rest of Europe and in the rest of um, the world understand Germany? I think there's been a... I think one of the great things that the European Union has done is to, in effect, defang a lot of these issues. Um, and obviously Germany itself has been so... Uh, the, the, the lessons learnt by the Germans from the 1940s and the conditions under which they found themselves in the mid to late 40s has created a, a society effectively unrecognisable from what was there before. But I think it is quite... I mean, you can tell, I don't know, in the current crisis in Greece, for example, the degree to which the Greeks, after many, many years of effectively just paying no attention to these issues, are, again, reaching for these while-you-occupied-us mm-hmm. kind of issues... And it is chilling and really quite frightening the degree to which, again, you can begin to see history being misused in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that simply the idea that the Germans in the early forties did horrible things in Greece, to Greece, therefore, in two thousand and twelve, they have some moral obligation to to pay no attention to Greek debt or something like that. It's just such a weird uh, sequence to. Mm-hmm. for anyone to dare to say effectively but people do because as in the past people reach for history for whatever's convenient um and you know it's it's, it's bound to happen but it's not good <laughs> absolutely and of course germany's being forced into and uh partly naturally evolving into a far more proactive role than it has done for the last yes. 20 30 40 years and, and and that affects how people see it as well yes and and uh i think one of the things i find quite frightening at the moment is that the the issues around the euro suddenly are turning Europe potentially into a group of unstable great powers again. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that the London-Berlin relationship is now, if not unstuck, is certainly questionable. Um, and the degree to which the leadership of all the European states effectively has been based around the idea of being more or less PR people or or mm-hmm. people who are just there to boost trade. You mean trade. The politicians? Yeah, they're there to boost trade and, and keep the show on the road. But the idea that suddenly there are actual genuine and possibly unrecoverably difficult uh, differences. I mean, I think, for example, when you think about, say, someone like Ireland, which has been reduced effectively to a German colony, uh, where there isn't, as far as I can see, there is no means by which Ireland can dig itself out from its current situation under current and how how long will the Irish be willing to submit to effectively an indefinitely impoverished future, or how long will the Greeks? You know, it's a and it's none of this is Germany's fault, but effectively Germany's left holding the can for mm. these things, and it's a very very difficult. To, Germany, I think, is so naturally consensual and so naturally provincial, and suddenly it's being asked to take these fiendishly difficult decisions, mm-hmm. um, and you can begin to see the 
a narrative developing in, in Berlin and in Paris that somehow, in some way, this is the fault of Britain. And yeah, you can see as a poisonous kind of sequence of events mm. available. I mean, I'm hardly saying it's anything to do with war or something like that, but it's just no one, I think, is used to the idea of working with great powers anymore. And the idea of diplomacy as being something where you have to somehow finesse differences between different states has been managed at a very dopey level in Brussels and suddenly now must be potentially at a much more serious level where you're dealing with the fates of millions of people who are in, a, in really a bad way. Mm -hmm. um, and so in an odd way, I think my book has much more relevance than I intended it to. <laughs> I mean, it was meant to be just an entertainment. Yes. But it does feed into these discussions about, well, what, how, are you going to, how, you, how do you use history? You know, what, is, what do we learn from history? Um, and, and do you hope that uh, more citizens of, of other countries, Britain included, uh, start to forget about wanting off to, wandering off to try and find their, their two weeks of sun every summer and then head off to try and find slaughterhouse pa uh, platters. Oh, yeah, no, in, I'm sure they should. You know, sure and they and should. the beautiful uh, churches and micro kingdoms, etc. that you yeah, describe I think, in the book. I think if you, uh, I don't know, like an obvious thing to do, just if you head up and down the Rhine, yeah, which used to be the quintessential British holiday destination before 1914. You know, like, mm -hmm. so everyone, I mean, the, the original Thomas Cook tours were up and down the Rhine. You know, you have these places like Mainz and Worms uh, and Speyer, you know, which are fantastic. You know, like you, they could not be more interesting. In the, mm -hmm. you know, if you're interested in history and if you're interested in culture, they are unbelievably interesting. And uh, one of the gratifications of this book has been able to, I've had numerous postcards and things from people all over the place saying, oh, I've had a great time in <laughs> X or Y, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and it's like, it's just, you know, I, I, I do like the idea that, and I suppose I'm very struck by the way that so many people go to Italy, or indeed even France, with an amazingly, un, and being amazingly uninterested in the history of where they are. You know, they might have some, they might think the cathedral's attractive, and they might, mm -hmm. but they have no sense at all of, yeah, and then the political just pa back. past the sun cream and yeah. back to the villa. And there's and a kind of, a of yes, exactly. There's a kind of uh, middle class rose drinking straw hat kind of behavior, yes, which is just views these as being, in effect, an elaborate version of their own gardens. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's always struck me as being a bit odd. I mean, it's just a massive streak, I guess, <laughs> of British Philistinism. Which is fine, you know. But I think every country has it, but probably, uh, yeah. But while you're talking about, I do recognise what yeah, you're talking about. We can about. see it here, but, yes. I'm, but I'm sure I'm sure nowhere else is better. Mm -hmm. But like, if you, yeah, if you are interested in uh, the way that history works, then Germany is just like a fantastic laboratory. Effectively, every period you have somewhere fascinating. Mm. You know, I mean, there's this great place called um, Ingolstadt in northern Bavaria, for example, which. Um, was the site of a siege during the Thirty Years' War by the Swedes, who were invading Germany at the time. And uh, the siege was unsuccessful, and Gustavus Adolphus, the great uh, mm. Swedish king, uh, had his horse shot out from under him, and he survived a little longer and ran yes. off and uh, was killed himself uh, shortly thereafter. But the, the townspeople dragged this damaged horse into the, mm -hmm. into the town and stuffed it. And it's still there, you know, and it is extraordinary. When you go there, there is the King of Sweden's horse. Yes. Yeah, 360 ba Badly years stuffed. Old. Uh, yes, places, it's all, you say. yes, it's all kinds of like, it's all sort of laced up and clearly very. <laughs> it used to be, I think, the centerpiece of feast, those civic, civic feasts. And yes. so you can see there's wine stains on it and things. It's a old horse. But it is, I think, one of the oldest animals in existence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is, it's, it's astonishingly old um, and it's just preserved for this kind of weird reason. 
Unfortunately, this also... Um, it, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about the Thirty Years' War. One, to try and make sense of it, because it was a particularly... I mean, it was a, it was a very much a continental war that not many Britons know about. No. And also it had such great anecdotes that you write in the book about. <laughs> However, I am very aware that, 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 that time is, is uh, oh running along quite it quickly. Uh, it's like your book. There's so much in it. Uh, you, you kind of get carried away. Um, I, I will end, however, not by asking about the Thirty Years' War, which we had another half an hour onto the interview at least, uh, but just asking, uh, are you working on anything at the minute? I am, uh, yes, I am writing a, a comparable book on the Habsburg Empire, actually, because, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's, I feel with Germania that it's like, um, I like I'm like a dodgy plumber who pretends to have fixed something while actually yes. there's like water and sparks and fluids and things coming out of the back of the washing machine and it mm-hmm. shuts the door and gives you an invoice because effectively German the German lands don't really make sense without the Habsburg Empire because of this mm-hmm. interlocking with Austria. And huge areas of history of Central Europe, effectively, there's a gap which needs to be filled by writing the, about everything to the east mm-hmm. because it, it's, it's the story of the Habsburgs and their relationship with the rest of Germany and the degree to which they're themselves, of course, German. Um, and the degree to which a lot of their empire is run by Germans is as important to the story. So mm-hmm. Germans in Transylvania, as we talked about earlier, or Germans all over the place, really, it's Slovenia, what's now Slovenia or the Czech mm. Republic or whatever, they um, were the motor for Central Europe as well. And so they're, 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 that German story, as well as the story of all the other nationalities there. And this brings in religion as well. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And religion really makes sense in the, that context. And so the Rhine is no more or less important to the story of broadly Germanic-ish Europe than mm-hmm. the Danube. Um, it's just that in the, along the Danube, effectively, it's, it's, it's vigorously contested by lots of other groups who don't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, many, and it's, it's as fascinating a story because it's, it's a story of many, many different national groups uh, at different times allying with other different groups uh, to try and throw off this German yoke Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually they succeed. Um, but unfortunately, the price of their success is, is the catastrophes of the 1920s and 30s. Mm. So it's a sort of, it's a parallel book, really, mm. starting, I suppose, in the same, it's the same rough, rough periodization. It's, it'll end, I think, I know I'm about three quarters of the way through. Uh, I think I'll probably end it with Hitler marching into Vienna okay. in 1938. Yes. Um, Have you read The Red Prince by Timothy Snyder? Yes, I have. Yes, uh, terrific. Book. Yeah, there was, there was a New Books Network uh, interview with uh, him about that as well, which uh, oh, which was fascinating. Yes, and of yes. course, Bloodlands and all of that. But mm. but uh, the Red Prince was specifically about uh, how the Habsburgs ended up in the age of nationalism, and and they had to sort of all disappear into their different ways yes, to, to try and find a, a a country that would sponsor them as yes. their leader. And it was Ukraine no, no, and Poland. It's, it's, a, it's a hopeless. Binend story, yes. really, of um, and also the funny degree to which the Habsburgs themselves were so, uh, even by the early modern period, they were so confused, effectively, about their identity that they they were pan Euro- pan European people, and so mm. that you know that many of them could speak Magyar or they could speak Czech very yes. fluently in a way that, or they would, or even more confusingly, their correspondence might be in French, you mm-hmm. know. So it was like a very very complex story but of course i'm uh, vienna is in the german-speaking world one of the key hubs 
And I was only able to talk about it in passing, really, in Germania. So it's like an opportunity to talk about these places. So. Sounds like an excellent book. I, well, look, I so. look forward to sending shambles. you an email and, <laughs> and uh, once it comes out and, says, and, and ask you whether you've got 45 minutes to spare. Well, anyway, I'd love to. Brilliant. Very much. Well, thank you. <laughs> and that was Simon Winder, the author of Germania, a terrific book that will change your opinion of Europe's most important country, probably for the better, provided that you stay clear of the slaughterhouse platter next time you look for something good to eat. This is Nicholas Walton from New Books in European Studies, wishing you a good day from here in London. Thank you.